0: What a privilege it is this morning to, to stand up here. I'm not the pastor, as you will see here in about five minutes. That will become very clear. Um, truthfully, I have no business standing here knowing who stands here most Sundays. And only by God's grace and mercy do I, uh, a pathetic sinner, stand before you. Without Christ calling me out, I can almost assure you I'm still running full speed towards my sin this very day. Praise God for his mercy and thank you so much, Lord, for, for saving me and for saving me out of that. And I'm also aware, just as you are, whose shoes I'm feeling in for this morning. <laughs> um, and so with that in mind, if you'll bear with me for the next little bit, then I'll bear with you as you nod off while I'm talking. <laughs> We'll all just bear with each other, uh, and we'll get we'll get through. So we're going to do something a little different this morning. We're going to look at a hymn. And I, I love music. I always have. I've always enjoyed music. I've attempted on a few occasions to learn to play an instrument, and I have failed miserably. Um, it's not my calling, for sure, um, but I still love it. I love it. I love listening to it. I love to play it when I can, and I also think that I appreciate it a little bit more because I'm just not a very good player, Um, but the players that can really play, they do things with instruments that I watch and listen to with utter amazement, and this is one of the things I just enjoy about listening to our worship um, team come up here on Sunday mornings. And I also know what I like, and you know what you like, and I can say with a fair amount of certainty, some of you will agree, some of you will disagree, but a lot of modern music stinks. It's just not very good, Um, and the lyrics are generally terrible. The melody leaves something to be desired as well, and uh, what we are going to look at this morning is one, in my opinion, one of the greatest hymns of all time, and according to most Google searches that I did, it ranks as one of the top ten favorite hymns of the people of all time, and it's old, which makes it even better. And I love everything about it, much like my wife Red. She asked me not to call her out, but I figure if I say something nice, that's probably okay. <laughs> I love everything about her, for sure. The song that we're going to talk about this morning, it's got such a great melody. The lyrics are just outstanding. And it takes you through these three wonderful things, I think. Where we can see God, where, where we can see Him, as we read this morning in Psalm 8. A great gospel presentation in the middle, verse 2. And then if we accept that gospel presentation, what's going to happen to us in the end is verse 3. And it's just such a great... I just love the the way that that theme rolls out. It's so amazing. And then, of course, when we conclude, Hoff and our musicians and you, we're going to blow this ceiling off with our voices and our instruments. God's going to be glorified, and I certainly hope that you will be blessed And the hymn is, How Great Thou Art. So first we're going to start off with a little history. The the song started off as a poem. And the story goes that a man named Carl Boberg, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, is a Swedish sailor who later quit sailing to become a pastor. And he wrote a poem after he was in this big thunderstorm. This is the story that, um, that you can find. During and after the thunderstorm You've got church bells ringing. You've got the aftermath of these parting clouds. You've got a little wind. You've got the sun sort of peeking through, birds singing, thunder still rumbling off in the distance. You get the picture, right? We've all been there and we've seen that. And he was inspired. He was inspired to write a poem and he called it, Oh, Great God. And I'm sure that many of you, I know I have, have seen God's magnificence during times like, like these. I love being outside. I love it. I prefer to be outside, actually. Uh, in fact, if we had a convertible roof today, this would be off of here and we would be, we would be outside doing church. Um, these, these scenes that, that he painted, they're, they're one, um, they're, they're here for a reason. Those, those scenes and the things that we view outside, they're here for a reason. I love being in his creation. I love acknowledging him when his magnificence is put on display in this amazing, amazing world. And we will see some of this come out in verse 1. So as the story unfolds, someone really liked the poem enough and they put it to music. They used a Swedish folk song tune and they just set the poem to music. A few decades later, this, this poem now, with some music attached, it makes its way to Russia. And in Russia, there was a missionary there named Stuart Hine, and he loved it. Hine he, he changed the music a little bit. He added some of the lyrics, including a third and a fourth verse, and he took it back with him to England after his stay, his missionary stay there in Russia. And he also renamed it and called it How Great Thou Art. So now we fast forward to the 40s and there was an evangelist named Edwin Orr who was in India and he heard it being sung. He also loved it, learned it. He heard Heinz's version and after his stay in India, he brought it back here to the U.S. And no one really knows how it made its way to India, but that's the way that it made its way to the U.S. Now when Heinz came back to England, he had it printed in this leaflet form. And in 1954, one of these leaflets winds up in the hands of a man named George Beverly Shea. And it turns out that this was a wonderful singer, he's a wonderful musician. And he traveled with another guy. Um, his name was Billy Graham. You guys ever heard of him? So he traveled with a guy named Billy Graham. Um, Billy Graham was at the time in London preaching. This would have been around 1954. About three years later, Shea decided he was going to sing that song during one of the Crusades. And he'd really come to love it, and they were in New York doing a crusade, Billy Graham, and he wound up singing the song during this crusade about a hundred times. It soon obviously becomes a song that was sung at all of Billy Graham's crusades, and it took off here in America. What a wonderful way that God uses this simple sailor from Sweden and a missionary from England to pin the words to, again, one of the most well loved hymns ever sung. So let's get into the song itself. Verse 1. It's going to bother anyone? I know it said no food and drink, but do I get a pass? Verse 1. O oh Lord, my God. When I, in awesome wonder, consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. One of the first things we notice is the acknowledgement of our great God. Now, pastor does not like us to use the word awesome unless we're talking about God. Then he gives us a pass. So I'll be careful here how I use the word. But isn't our God awesome? And isn't his creation awesome? So let's consider the awesome wonder of this marvelous world for a moment. And I, I love the authors, and you can hear, again, in this verse one, you can hear, I hear the rolling thunder. So you can hear, as we heard the history a minute ago, how this poem unfolds anyway, and you can hear that. I just think that's it's, it's amazing. The rumbling in the distance, you can hear the thunder. What a display. And, of course, who can neglect the power of the lightning, of course. So we get this picture of the power and this magnificence already early on in the song. Part of what we do when we sing and when we write and when we worship is we recognize this relationship between how big God is and how big the world and the universe is that he made. That is not by accident and it is not by coincidence. There is a relationship between the infinite universe and an infinite God. Most would say that there is no end to the universe. If you want to get a picture of just how big God is, tonight, go outside and look up. Just look up. Look out. But just look, and you'll see a wonderful picture of how big God is. Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now, if you really think that the universe is as majestic as it is, just because, as we say in southern Alabama, then you're not looking closely enough at the parallels that he has clearly drawn. Again, the universe is on display, and it's in full view, so that we might get a glimpse of his bigness, his eternality, his power, It's open for everyone to see. Those that don't see, we should continually pray for them, that God would open their eyes and they could go out and see Him. Romans 1, uh, 19 and 20, "...for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly perceived." ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. God has been revealed, and we can see him if we just look. Let's consider some amazing facts about the universe and the earth around us. Now these will blow you away. Some you'll, in fact, think you may even want to fact check me because they're so incredible. There are more stars in the universe than grains of sand on all the beaches on the earth. The bright star Vega, which is sometimes considered the North Star, is relatively close to us. At twenty-five light years away. So the light we see left the star, or left the star star 25 years ago, which is the way we define a light year. A little math will help with the bigness. Now I'll try to. I'll back off a little bit on the math because I don't want to have the same. I see that look five days a week, y'all. And so um, I'll back off a little bit. But light travels at about 186,000 miles a second. Get your head around that. So if we do a little multiplication and make sure you carry the one, we've got one light year being about 5.88 trillion miles. Vega, again, I guess I'm pronouncing that right. It's a relatively close star, and it's 25 light years away. Now, try to wrap your head around that again for bigness. That's almost 6 trillion. 1 trillion is followed by 12 zeros. If you started spending a million dollars every single day since the birth of Jesus, you still would not have spent a trillion dollars. One million seconds is about 11 and a half days. A billion seconds is about 32 years, while a trillion seconds is about 32,000 years. You getting the picture here? And remember, that's one of the closer stars. One thing we know is that God designed everything, and he said, it's good. He designed it so that in it, We could see his character, we could see his goodness, we could see his bigness, we could see his magnificence. It was built with a purpose in mind. Let's think of the sun. The sun's essential to us, it's the center of our solar system. It's our source of light, it's our source of energy. But it's just one of many, many, many stars that make up our home galaxy, the Milky Way. Current estimates suggest that there are around 400 billion stars in our galaxy. Using data from the Hubble Telescope, astronomers have calculated that there are likely to be around 170 billion galaxies in the observable universe. Again, you getting a picture here of how big we're talking? Our brains struggle to comprehend how big. The universe is, because everything here on earth, and even the earth itself, is very small in comparison to the immense scale of the universe. By comparison, the earth could fit into the sun 1.3 million times. The bigness of God can be seen in the universe. It's not by accident. And it is on display so that we might see him. And it's not just the universe. Pastor mentioned this last week. Look at us and how detailed he's created us. Marvel just at DNA. If you unraveled all the DNA in your body, it would span 34 billion miles. Reaching to Pluto and back six times. And that's just the size. Think of what it does. I don't have the vocabulary to describe how amazing that is. But of course, this is all just happenstance. It's mere coincidence and probability. It, of course, is just order out of chaos. It's amazing, isn't it? Now, I'm no mathematician, but I know just enough to be dangerous. After all, I do play one in real life. And I know enough about probability that you can throw the notion that this is all just coincidence, you can throw that out. It's just plain denial by the science world. It's the crossing of the arms and the throwing back of the head and going, I'm just refusing. I'm refusing to believe. They want there to be no God so badly that they're so willing to just blatantly deny the obvious. They want everything to be explained by science. Why? So they can receive all the glory. But like Romans 1, they suppress and they refuse to see it for what it really is. But I would say, let's don't make fun of them. Let's pray for them. That God might open their eyes to the truth. Because science just simply cannot explain where everything came from. The Bible can, but science can't. And it does. Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. And here's the answer, scientists. For He commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever, and he gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Seems simple enough. So wouldn't it be easier and cheaper to just stop the scientific studying and the paper writing and the teaching about how everything just happened into existence? It just sort of crashed together and poof. Science could spend their time rejoicing in the creation and spending all of their time and their money and their efforts and their thinking and On how we might best use what he's already created. Couldn't we just consider his greatness in the creation? Just look out and see how great. I'd like to take that science class. That's the class I would like to take. Not the ones that I took in college. Maybe you as well. Pondering the greatness of our Lord forces us to consider who we are in comparison to him. When measured against the eternal self-sufficient maker of heaven and earth... We are but a breath that comes and goes in an instant. Psalm 144. O Lord, what is man that you regard him? Or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the Son of Man that you care for him. And lest we forget the separation between us and the Almighty Creator, here's what Isaiah has to say Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So when he creates the universe, Thy power throughout the universe displayed, one of the lines in the song. Part of what he is doing, again, is he's drawing this clear line in the sand. I am the Lord God Almighty. I created all of this. And I did it so that you could see how awesome I am, how big I am, how amazing I am. I am the creator of the universe, and there is this tremendous cavern between me and you. And the only way that that gap will be bridged is if I build the bridge and invite you to cross it. Which takes us to verse 2, which is the gospel. What if science could take hold and believe that verse that we just read? As believers, we, we already know that we can see him in creation. But what about the unbeliever? What about when he recognizes that there is a purpose to life and that the creation is here to put God on display? When the unbeliever now recognizes the truth of that particular verse and the rest of Scripture, they need verse 2 of this song, which is the gospel. The gospel. Music is... Again, to me, it's such a powerful means to deliver any sort of message. So it seems appropriate that an amazing song like this would deliver, in fact, the gospel message. So what's the gospel? Well, I considered this. I considered that this is such a biblically literate and educated church. I hesitated to talk about it too much. But for the sake of those who don't know or for the sake of those that might need a refresher, here we go. Verse 2, and when I think of God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in, that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. And there it is, in song form, the gospel message quite clearly stated. The first question that's usually asked with non-believers is, why do I need a Savior? What am I being saved from? To the saved, we can clearly see how we need a Savior. Our sin is so painfully obvious, we, quote, scarce can take it in. Again, a Savior from what? Our non-saved friends might say. I'm a good person. I don't steal I don't murder. I pay my taxes. We have to recognize this. First and foremost, that our sin and humanness versus God's holiness is no comparison. And if he is just, then we have to be punished for our sin. Otherwise, he's not just. And that's a characteristic and an attribute of God. The punishment must involve death. That's the way God set it up. Again, there's a chasm between he and I, and there's no way that I can get thoroughly wrap my head around the way he, is, he has set this, this up. Often, often, that sacrifice must involve blood, a bloody cross to be sure. And that's exactly what verse 2 again is saying. When I think of God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden... Gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. What a phrasing. God has his son killed to pay the penalty for our sin. So that on that day of judgment, our sin is not counted against us because it's been paid in full on the cross. And the punishment was gladly bearing? What a thought. He gladly bore The penalty, what a love for his people. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned, everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's a prophecy. All the way back prior to Christ entering the world, we have this prophetic explanation of the gospel. Someone, according to Isaiah, is going to be hurt very badly. Someone is going to be crushed, and it isn't going to be pretty. That someone, of course, is our Savior. Christ Jesus. First Peter 2, through 25 Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, <clears throat> he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Christ fully trusted the Father and gladly bore our sins. He gave up his life without threat. Painful? I'm sure. Of course it was. But he knew what he had to do and he did it. What a man. What a man. That should be the major component of the definition of a man. He knew what he had to do, and he did it. No matter the pain, no matter the cost. In this world of self-identity, just identify however. I'd like to identify as a man, please. Impossible shoes to fill for certain, but worth the effort. Knew what he had to do, and he did it on the cross for us. What a message. 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what i also received that christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the 3rd day in accordance with the scriptures now this is the key verse that really sort of spells out the gospel and it gets to the heart of verse 2 And I love this idea that Paul uses of first importance. He's saying, Paul is saying, of all the issues or the comments I could bring to you, this one is the one that I want to be on the top of the list, of first importance. This is the message that Paul received from Christ himself in Acts. So it isn't any wonder that Paul would call it first importance. Recall that day, Acts 9. Acts 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. You remember the story. Jesus steps in front of him, blinds him, and asks him, Why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Sends him to the city for three days He was without sight. He didn't eat. He didn't drink anything. And I'm sure during this time period, the gospel message was clearly given to Paul. And Paul, and hopefully to us, says this is where we'll begin. It is of first importance. We share the gospel. We live the gospel. And the ordering of the verses in the hymn, to me, they make sense. Because before we accept the gospel we first have to have this belief that there's at least a higher power. And so we observe in the heavens and on the earth around us that none of this is just by accident. There is a reason and a purpose for our existence. So then the hearer moves on to understand this idea of sin and why we need the cross. What's sin? Again, I'm, I'm a good person. I don't kill people. You'll hear the sinner say, Or when I was a younger person, a good person didn't smoke, drink, cuss, or use chewing tobacco. If you didn't do any of those things, you're in the club. But what really needs to be explained again and heard here is God's holiness in comparison to our sinfulness. Our sins are no match for God's holiness. The comparisons, in fact, are humorous. I don't kill people. I don't steal. This is our modern definition of good people. But of course, when we get to Jesus, he sheds a whole new light on this. You have hate in your heart? Murderer? Murderer. Do you look at others and think sexual thoughts mentally with them? Adultery? Adultery. Because it's a heart issue. And it's also a matter of comparison. How do we compare ourselves to a holy God? Answer? You can't. You can't. Which is why you need a Savior. Examples in Scripture of God's holiness abound. They're everywhere. After all, this is a book, again, that continuously shows us God's attributes. An example, story of Moses, the burning bush. Moses approaches the burning bush. God tells Moses to take off his shoes because he's on holy ground and says, don't come any closer. We must see and differentiate between God's holiness and our goodness. And there's this dramatic difference between the two. Of course, the bad news is that there is none righteous, no, not one, Romans 3:10. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us has transgressed the laws of God in our thoughts, words, and deeds more times than we could ever even imagine or count. A person who does not believe he is a sinner will see no need for a savior. So the unbeliever must see this basic fact. You are are indeed a sinner, and your sin must be punished. It's the sin and the death problems that make it impossible for a person to gain life with God through his own good works, because no matter how good he is, you're still a criminal in God's sight. And under the sentence of eternal death, and this is why Christ had to die. And then, of course, there's a resurrection. There's a resurrection. He was buried... He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And the resurrection is essential to the gospel because it proves that Jesus overcame those two things, sin and death. So therefore, the gospel is the truth. We're all sinners. We're all criminals before God and under the sentence of eternal death and separation from God and all that is good. Jesus took the wrath of God for us. His body was placed in a tomb. And on the third day, he came back from the dead, never to die again. And God in his love and grace has overcome our two enemies, sin and death. And those who acknowledge to Jesus that they are sinners, they repent for them and they trust him to save them from eternal condemnation are forgiven their sins and given the gift of life eternal with God. So for those that have never heard the gospel, It has clearly been laid out for you, and you, as they say in Romans 1 again, are without excuse. The gospel has been clearly presented. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because he knew that God works his power through the gospel to take people from death to life. Paul said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek And that's why he said, that's why Paul said, it is of first importance, and it should be of first importance to us. Last verse. Y'all are doing a great job. Verse 3. It's my favorite part. Not because I'm not thankful for my salvation, because I certainly am. And not because it's not first importance, because it is. I'm grateful and beyond. At that fact. Without it, nothing else matters. Most especially the next verse of the psalm. Because I now know what I didn't know years ago. That I would have continued towards my sin would Christ have not come after me. But now that I know, that I know, that I know, that I'm a fully redeemed Christ lover and follower, what the future holds is beyond comprehension. Like all the promises that God has made in Scripture and fulfilled, we can rest assured that this one will come to pass as well. Hoff saved the best for last because in a moment when we sing this through, we're going to come to verse 3. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation. And lead me home. What joy shall fill my heart. And then I shall bow with humble adoration. And then proclaim, my God, how great thou art. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation. First Thessalonians 4. Another truth. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. With the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. How's that for a mental picture? I imagine often what that will be like. Maybe we'll be on here, on this earth to witness it, maybe. Maybe not. But many will be. And what is that going to be like? Imagine all of the looks, and there will be looks. There will be looks of horror, bewilderment, tears, joy, surprise, on and on. Thinking back on verse 2 in the gospel presentation, what will be your look if you were here and that trumpet blows and you aren't saved? There will be a look, but the question is, what look? That's the question. And if you're unsure, I would beg you this morning to plead with God that it will be one of great joy. Believe on Jesus so that you might be saved. Cry out for his mercy today. This promise in First Thessalonians is a most assured ending to us that are the redeemed that are left here on this earth. And it'll only be the beginning. We'll all wake up one day and not have a clue how, as to how the day will end. I woke up on May the 7th without a clue as to how that day would end. I went to work, I came back home, and that day ended with me on my back in an ambulance headed towards what very well may be the beginning of the end for me on this earth. But it's certainly only the beginning to what lies ahead. And we just don't ever know, do we? We just don't ever know. We have no idea what tomorrow is or the end of this day for that matter, will hold. So for those here on earth, when that day comes, they will wake up, and they won't have a clue. And I've often heard this said in sermons and blogs and things that I have read, and I'll repeat it. Sometime during that day, there's going to be a boom, a boom of a trumpet, and the clouds are going to be ripped open And to our surprise and to our applause, there he'll be, the king of kings. How I long for that day. (laughs) I long for that day. And he will most assuredly, quote, lead me home. What joy shall fill my heart. Line two. And home is an interesting word to use there, isn't it? Our home is not here. Do you often, do you get that feeling sometimes? Do you look around? Do you listen to the world around you and just feel kind of uneasy? You know what it is. It's Philippians 3. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Maybe it's 2 Corinthians 5. For we know that if the tent that is our heavenly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. We are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And this is why we long for that boom, and it's coming. It's coming. These are great truths, are they not? Such wonderful biblical promises that will most certainly, most certainly they will come true. They are our future, and they're what we should groan and long for. When he descends, we will also bow. Line 3 says, Then I shall bow with humble adoration. I promise you will bow. Philippians 2, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Or Romans 14, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So, then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So, to continue with our thinking about the promises that will all come true, that will come true in Scripture, here's yet another one. Every knee will bow and acknowledge the King of the universe. And I wonder if sometimes we forget this and we forget the bigness of God. This God that we serve is huge. There's nothing like him, nor will there ever be other than he himself. A big view of God is this. We will all bow down before him. A small view of God does not acknowledge this promise. Small view of God, people are content with saying, eh, as, long as, it, as long as it works for you, as long as it works for you. But God comes along and proclaims that what works for you, it's not going to work for him. Everyone will bow And take notice that he is the great creator of the universe, the Alpha, the Omega. Now that's big. That's big. And so finally, we'll conclude with the chorus. When these things that we have talked about this morning are acknowledged, we can and will sing out with loud voices, I promise. My God, how great thou art then sings my soul not my voice but my heart my soul from deep within my soul will cry out how great thou art some sunday mornings red and i would get in the car and we wonder how is it that we sing these amazing songs every morning and everyone in the building is not in tears what amazing truths we get to sing every Sunday morning. Let's sing them. Let's sing all of them from the depths of our souls and really meditate on the lyrics. Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Do you long? Does your soul faint from proclaiming how great thou art? Do we really take in all of these facts of greatness and holiness and magnificence and truly proclaim how great thou art? Is it something that we just say? Or is it something that our soul longs and faints for? This is a big claim. Longing and fainting dwelling on who he is, what he has done, and what he will do. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for reminding us in your scripture what has happened and what will happen. These reminders of the gospel and how we are to be saved, amazing, amazing truths. And I would pray, God, that anyone who can hear my voice, who has not come to saving faith in you, I would pray that today would be the day that they would long for you, that they could not end the day without knowing you full well. And we pray, Lord, that you would come quickly as your word clearly proclaims. There will be a trumpet blown, clouds will part, and you, the King of kings, will in fact bust through and you will take back the redeemed. We long for that day, and we pray again, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in the name of our Savior and our Redeemer, Christ Jesus. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.